turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. If you turn in your Bibles, turn in Nehemiah 7 and then take a finger and put it in Nehemiah 11 as well. And uh, I confess the insert might simply be easier for you this morning. Those of you who uh, maybe are visiting this morning or haven't been around for a while, we have taken a couple weeks off from our study of the book of Nehemiah, this Old Testament book. Uh, now we are back after a few weeks break and uh, jumping back into where we left off, Nehemiah chapter 7. Uh, this is the story of God's ancient people and of God returning his people to uh, the land of promise, the land that he had promised them long, long ago, and yet for years they had sat in exile wondering, was God faithful? Was God going to fulfill what he said he was going to do? And indeed, he does fulfill. He is faithful. And so, Nehemiah is led back to the primary city, the city of Jerusalem, the focal point of the promised land. And he is just one of several waves of returnees of exiles who come back, focusing primarily on the walls. And of course, that's all review for many of you who have sat and listened to the first six chapters, but you all know, those of you who have been here, that the, the walls have been the focus. We've looked at six chapters, we've learned lots of lessons about God, about his work, and the lessons that His word has for us today, but the focus has been on the walls. But now, those of you who remember the last time we were in Nehemiah, the walls are complete. The task has been finished for the most part. And so chapter 7 really is, it's a turn in the book. And it's a turn from the task that has now been completed to a community that now needs to be formed and is beginning to be formed. You see, just like the walls, the people themselves, the people of God, the people returning to the land of promise after many years in exile, the people themselves lie in ruins. See, many of them have forgotten what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be a holy nation, what it means to be a people set apart. So that's where we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 7. That's fitting that Nehemiah 7 begins with people, with lots and lots of people. Lots and lots of names. And today, I don't want us to get lost in the names. So you remember that we read Nehemiah, what was it, chapter 2, and there was lots of names, and we trudged through all those names, and we highlighted what God was doing in those specific lives. The names in Nehemiah 7 and 11 are important. I don't want to diminish their importance. I will speak to their importance, but I just don't want us to get bogged down in the names. And so, to answer that burning question in all of your minds, is he really going to read 
all of Nehemiah 7 and 11? The answer is no. I'm not going to read. I thought about it. Believe me, I thought about it. But thinking about time, it would take me probably at least 15 minutes just to read these two chapters. But for the sake of time and without wanting to diminish at all God's word and the importance of each name that's listed here, I'm going to go through it quickly. I'm going to go through it quickly and I'm going to jump through it a bit. And so follow along as I read. This is God's holy word. Beginning with Nehemiah 7, verse 1. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rahamiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpereth, Bigva, Nahum, Bani. The men, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,100. And 72. And then you see lots of sons listed. The sons of Elam, the sons of Zechai, and it goes on and on. Skip down to verse 39. Then we go to the priests, the sons of Judea, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. Verse 43, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, it lists the Levites, then the gatekeepers. Verse 46, the temple servants, the sons of Ziha. Then down to verse 60, all the temple servants and the sons of, sons of Solomon's servants were 392. And then skip down to the very end of chapter 7. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers... Some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Flip over with me to chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city 
while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his own property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. And then jump down to uh, uh, verse 10. Of the priests, Judea, the sons of Joarib and Jachin. And then verse 15, the Levites, and it lists the Levites. Verse 22, the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem. And then verse 25, and as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dabon and its villages, and in Jechabazil and its villages. And then finally, Chapter 11, verse 36, and certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what in the world can we learn from these lists? These lists of of many names and many numbers. Is this just stale history for those who are interested in that kind of thing? Of course, you know I'm going to say no. No, there's much, I think, for us to learn, much more than I'm going to say this morning for us to glean from Nehemiah chapter 7 and chapter 11. We certainly could get lost in the trees. There are lots of trees. We skipped lots of the trees. But I want to focus on simply two primary truths that we can glean and gain and be challenged by from God's Word this morning. And the first one is this. God has the right to direct your steps. God has the right to direct your steps. The Scriptures remind us of this over and over Again, Psalm 37, 23 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Proverbs 16, 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 20, verse 24, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? See, I know that you know that these passages are the truth. That that phrase, that God has the right to direct your steps, is the truth. But I also know that it's one thing to intellectually assent to something, and it's another thing to allow yourself to wholeheartedly submit to that truth that you know, and that you believe. See, the people of God in Nehemiah's day, they came face to face with this reality. Not just with this truth, but this reality. Because the call of God intersected their world. 
in a very direct and meaningful way. What are the three most important words in real estate? Location, location, location. Right? That's the big joke. Remember a couple years back, my grandmother, my father's mother, moved from her home in Enid, Oklahoma, which she had lived in for many, many, many years, and moved into an apartment complex, as many of our um, loved ones do in their old age. And she uh, left the home to my dad. He was, is the executor of her estate. And I asked my dad what, what he was going to do with the home, and particularly what, what he thought he could get for the home. I've been to the house. It's a nice two-story, three-bedroom house. And I asked him what he thought he could get for it if he sold it. And he said, well, he'd done some preliminary research, and he thought maybe he could get about $10,000. And I said, really? $10,000 for this house. Now it's an old house built in the early 1900s on a dirt road in Enid, Oklahoma. But that same house in our neighborhood that we used to live in in San Diego $400,000 easy. Location, location, location. These chapters, chapters 7 and 11, are a bit about location. The walls of Jerusalem have been built, and yet there is a glaring problem with Jerusalem. We read about it in chapter 7, verse 4. Look at it. The city was wide and large... But the people in it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. You see, there was great joy, there was great gratification over the fact that the task had been completed, that the wall was done, but there was also a tinge of sadness now that this task was completed, because suddenly the walls weren't the focus. Now it was suddenly what was inside the walls. There was not much to look at inside the walls. And this was the city of God. This was the centerpiece of God's people's lives. This was the place where the temple existed. This was the place where worship happened. This was the place where God's presence dwelt with His people. But here it was. Barely anyone was living there. And and you really can't blame the people of God. You really can't blame them for not living there. Jerusalem has laid in ruins for years and years and years. It is far from an Olympic-ready, picturesque city. No, Jerusalem is like Enid, Oklahoma at this point. Sorry if you were born in Enid. And on top of that, some of these people who had been carried off into exile and are returning from Babylon, they didn't live in the city when they left. They lived in the farms. And when they wanted to come home, when they decided to come home from Babylon, they decided to come home to the the family farm outside of the walls of Jerusalem. It wasn't that they had bought in to now make the alleyways of Jerusalem where they're going to set up shop. No, they came to come home to wide open spaces. 
And yet here's the city of God. An undesirable place to live. And Nehemiah sees it and he knows that he's got to do something. And so he begins in chapter 7 by digging digging up the records, and he finds the book of the genealogy of those who first returned years and years earlier to ask the question, what families and descendants are are currently represented here that I can tap into? Who belongs here in this city? And we'll return a little bit to chapter 7 in a few moments, but chapter 7 is the problem. Chapter 11, which is why we're putting the two chapters together, is the solution to the problem. What is God's leaders, what do God's leaders decide to do to solve this problem? Well, essentially what they do is they, ato- they uh, apply the principle of the tithe. 10%. One out of every 10 families is going to be chosen chosen by lots to come and to move into the city. If you flip over to chapter 11, verse 2, there's some confusion about verse 2, about whether these were additional volunteers that said, yep, I'll go, I'll move back into the city, or whether these just this just describes the attitude of those who the lots fell on. Either way, 3,000 And 44 families willingly submitted themselves to God's direction. They picked up their families, they picked up their stuff, and they moved into the city of God. They moved into Jerusalem. Verses 3 through 19 of chapter 11, it lists them for us. They're, They're a diverse group. They're a great picture of all the gifts and all the skills and all the diversity that was represented in the building of the walls. There's Joel, the chief officer, in verse 9. Sariah, the ruler of the house of God, in verse 11. Uzai, in verse 22, was the music director. Lots of names. But in addition to these named people, there is a ton of unnamed folks. Mighty men of valor. A large group assigned to keep watch over the temple. These people moved as well. Whatever the job, they were all needed to restore and revitalize a city. And they all recognized this simple truth, that God had the right to direct their steps. And so they willingly submitted. It wasn't as if those who stayed in the towns, those who stayed in their villages, those who stayed outside the walls of Jerusalem, it wasn't as if they were, they were second-class citizens or they weren't the spiritual ones. No. Everyone was not called to come to the city, but everyone had to be willing to let God direct their steps. Well, I want to think about this in relationship to our own lives. But before we do that, I want to think about, is there any biblical precedent for God doing this kind of thing? 
Of course there is. Those of you who know the scriptures well think of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God told him to move. Move to a new country. Move to a new land that I will show you. How about Moses? Exodus 3, Moses is told to leave the land of Midian and go to Egypt and speak, very uncomfortably speak, to the leader of Egypt, to Pharaoh himself. How about the apostles? Jesus commanded the apostles to go. They didn't go. And so God made them go. He sent persecution their way, and in Acts 8, they scatter. Over and over and over again, we have God calling His people as He chooses, directing them where He wants to accomplish what His purposes are in the world. Here in Nehemiah's day, many, named and unnamed, willingly submitted and participated in what God was doing. And of course, you know, as I bring this to our lives, that God is still at work. He is building something. We were reminded of it in 1 Peter 2. Living stones being built upon the chief cornerstone. He's building His church. He's calling all men, all nations to Himself by the power of His Word and by the power of His Spirit. And it's this vision, it's this acknowledgement of what God's doing. That's our place. That's our place to be used by God for that purpose, that His name, that His fame might spread to the ends of the earth. And in some ways, it's so much bigger than what God's people were called in Nehemiah's day to be a part of. And so what does this mean for us? What does chapters 7 and 11 mean for us as the people of God? It means simply this, that location, location, location really doesn't matter. At least not in the sense that we might like it to matter. Location matters only insofar as it matters for God's work, for God's kingdom, for what He is accomplishing. I've heard the phrase more than once that God sometimes moves the troops. And of course, we've seen that in our own midst, as some among us have been moved strategically by God, by His call to other places, to other areas. And the bottom line is this, Jesus is Lord of all. And that Lordship might extend, it might very well extend to the very place that we choose to live. Many of you have wrestled with this to some degree. And I know that all of you have wrestled with this to some degree, not necessarily in the place where you live, but in the place where you worship. See, many of you had a comfortable church home for many, many years. You had predictable, deep 
relationships that were years and years old, and yet you recognized that God has the right to direct your steps. You caught the vision of what God was doing and is doing. Because you love Him and you love His work, you came north. And you began Cross Point North, which is now Ascension Presbyterian Church. You've caught that vision, and the vision is still there. And you ought to be encouraged by that, but you also ought to know that God may not stop there. God hasn't stopped here. We have not yet arrived. God still has some uncomfortable things to do to us. He still has some directing that is going to be difficult. See, everyone who has been called to the mission field has had to think about this and and to submit to this. Matt Jocelyn gave up the the nice, cool summers of the Northwest to, to sweat in Papua New Guinea and the Mortons. The Stoms have left the comforts and the securities of the United States of America to live with the uncertainty and the insecurity of Africa. And we could go on and on. Why did they do this? Because they recognize that they're not their own. They recognize that God has the right to call them anywhere. And they have a vision for what God is doing in the world. Now, God may or may not be calling you to move. I don't want any of you to move. I'm not advocating that many of you leave and find somewhere else to go. But I want us to be challenged. We have to be challenged as we come to God's Word with asking the question, if He required us to go, would we go? Would we be willing We move all the time because some guy in a business suit in a corporate office says that we need to be in this place for the good of the company. But would you find a job in a new city just because you heard someone was planning a church there and needed a core group? I love hearing those stories of people who resign and move to go with a church planner just because they want to be part of a new plant. God has the right to direct your steps. God might literally move you. He might. But He might call you to stay. He might be teaching you other things. He might be teaching you contentment. Whether it's Seattle, whether it's the jungles of Amazon, it doesn't matter. God has the right to direct your steps. And He's not calling you to a life of ease. He's calling you to a life of dependence. Isaiah caught the vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and what did he say? Here I am, Lord, send me. And it's my prayer, it's my hope that as we catch the vision of what God is doing and what the gospel of Jesus is doing, that we will respond and have the grace to respond in the same way. Well, that's the first thing I want us to think about. There's another, and this is briefer. 
Because God reminds us not of this truth and this call on our lives, but he also reminds us of the call of the gospel, of, of the motivators, so to speak, for why God has the right to direct our steps. And so the second truth is this. Remember what God has done, is doing, and will do. Remember what God has done, is doing, and will do. There are three greats, I think, for us to consider here in Nehemiah 7 and 11. The first is the great cloud of witnesses. The great cloud of witnesses. Those of you who know the Scriptures know that I'm now speaking of Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, the the writer to the Hebrews sets before God's people those who have gone before. And it follows this great chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, this, this hall of faith. Those who believed in God's promises. Those who walked in faith to His commands. Even though many of them never received, they never saw the fullness of what was held out for them. But there they are. They're seated in the Colosseum. The race is completed for them. But we're still running. And they're still cheering. And we're called to remember them. And as Nehemiah digs up the genealogy, the book of genealogy in Nehemiah chapter 7, he reminds us that our faith, that the faith of the people of his day is connected to the past. Chapter 7 is its own hall of fame of sorts. These were the heroes to those of Nehemiah's day. These were the trailblazers. At least when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, something was going The temple had been built. There was something happening when these people gave up the comforts of Babylon to come to Jerusalem. It was a mess. There was nothing going. There was nothing happening. But they chased a promise. A promise that they knew would come true. And so our faith, we're reminded... God's people were reminded that our faith is connected to the past. It's a faith of heritage, a faith that relies and appreciates those who have gone before us. All the way back to the beginning of time, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through church history, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, and we are encouraged by that. Because their vision that has taken them to the finish line is the same vision as ours. Do you ever think about mingling in heaven? Do you think about mingling with those who have gone before? I do. And sometimes I think about, with embarrassment, mingling about those who have gone before. And I know that God doesn't call everyone to the same suffering or the same path. And yet there are some who have 
great stories of gospel faithfulness and gospel struggle and gospel persecution. And they finish the race. And they're just waiting for us to finish the race. And so Nehemiah says, remember those who have gone before. Remember the great cloud of witnesses and what God has done through them. Well, secondly, remember the great story. Remember the great story. And this is what God is doing, right? Because every time we look at Nehemiah, we recognize that there's something so much bigger going on here than just a wall, than just a restoration of a city, a revitalization of a city that now looks totally different than it did thousands of years ago. No, God is crafting a story. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of preservation. The preservation of a line. And let's just take one name, for instance. Nehemiah 7, verse 7. They came with Zerubbabel. Yes, he is a hero of the faith. But more than that, he is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. God is preserving a line because he's sending Jesus. This line needs a city. They need protection so that he can accomplish his purposes, so that he can one day call us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God through Jesus. And this list reminds us that there are no little people. We didn't read every name, but I tried to stress the fact that every name is important. Maybe it reminds some of you of the the Lamb's Book of Life, which is spoken of, the names that will be listed, your name that is listed among some of these names who have gone before. Well, lastly, look to the great city of God. And this is what God will do. What God will do. You see, the consummation of it all is indeed a city that is full. A city that is vibrant. A city that is joyful. A city that is centered on the Lord. Right, that's the goal of Nehemiah, but that is the big goal of everything. We were brought there so well this morning as we sang, Glorious things of Thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. Savior, if of Zion city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. And that's the consummation of it all, is the great city that is still to come. And that's the joy that is set before us. And I'm not even talking about the streets of gold. And I'm not talking about the fact that there'll be no pain and and no tears. Though those things are wonderful, I'm talking about the fellowship of God. The presence of the Lord. The One who you were made for. The One whose image you bear. One day the city of God will be 
full. And we'll be there. And it'll be a great day. As Paul says, the, the minor inconveniences of movement and change and suffering will be dwarfed. They'll be dwarfed in comparison with that which is to come. Oh, my prayer is that we will be consumed with these gospel truths. So consumed that like Peter and the other disciples from last week, those of you who were here, they'd be willing to leave everything and to follow his call wherever that might lead. Because the Lord has the right to direct our steps. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge once again this morning that we are yours. Father, and that you have the right to direct our steps, to move your servants. So, Father, we pray that you would use these ransomed lives in whatever way you choose. And give us such a vision that we volunteer, that we run to the front of the line remembering what it is that you have done and the great cloud of witnesses that that rejoice having finished the race as we remember the story of the gospel and what you are weaving throughout human history and as we look to the city that awaits us still. Father, may that be our vision. May that be our fixation this day as we go from this place to be used for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.